So it was really nice. It's nice to be back. Uh, I'd like to um, extend well wishes from Hope Community Church in Alcoa. We continue to lift you up and this warrior of God in prayer all the time. Um, so uh, welcome from them. Hugs from my wife Angie, literal, not figurative. She wants me to hug everybody before I leave. So don't get out the door uh, before I get a chance to do that. Uh, when Chris contacted me, like he said on Friday, um, he asked if I could, in his words, dust off an old sermon and bring it. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, this particular sermon I delivered just a couple of weeks ago, so it wasn't very dusty yet. So um, I presented this as a first of a uh, three-week run-up to Easter that we were doing, uh, simply titled, I Am, talking specifically about the, ty- uh, the uh, descriptions Jesus gives to himself in John 14:6 referring to his identity when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So as a bit of background, before we uh, go digging into this, uh, Jesus has, in John, uh, washed the feet of his disciples, and he has already declared that he would be betrayed, and Judas has left. They're in the upper room, and we read, I'm going to start in John 13, 31, to give you a little background context here. When he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, I love that he calls his disciples that. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I always smile when I read the words and actions of Peter. As I may have mentioned before to you, I know I've mentioned many times, I can relate to Peter's style of act first, think later. It was a personality trait that I had in my youth and still struggle to get rid of now in adulthood. Peter is so sure of his feelings toward Jesus that he declares that he will lay down his life for him. Follow him anywhere. You ever wondered how Jesus felt sharing the truth with Peter about what would really happen in the clutch? Parents, I think, sometimes experience this as our kids age and they start growing into independence. And they come to you and they declare their intention to do something. But wisdom tells you that that's not going to pan out exactly the way they think. It's a little bit heartbreaking. 
But no matter what, we know the truth. And Jesus knew the truth as well. It's not hard to imagine that after all of this talk, in this moment, that the remaining 11 are freaking out a little bit. Judas is gone. Jesus has said that Peter, the rock, will betray him, or excuse me, will deny him. Jesus is making it clear that he's leaving. He's going someplace where they can't follow him. To this group of people that he has been doing ministry with for almost three years. You have to imagine that the emotion in the room all of a sudden is uncertainty at least and total fear for some. My wife Angie's favorite place on earth is not Disney World. Everybody says Disney World is favorite place on earth. It's not hers. Hers is a little bed and breakfast out in Kingston, Tennessee called the Whitestone Country Inn. We started going out there in 2005, 2006. Really didn't know what to expect. So this is a brief commercial for Whitestone, but they're not compensating me in any way for this. <laughs> it's out on Watts Bar Lake. If you've never been, I highly encourage you to go. It's a beautiful and peaceful place. It's, um, they, they take care of missionaries and they take care of, of pastors. Uh, pastors, I, I think, stay half off. Missionaries stay for free. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. The food, oh, don't get me started on the food. It's amazing, okay? But you can hike, you can do stuff on Watts Bar Lake. That's not the point. The point is that we went out there and instantly fell in love, not just with Whitestone, but with the man who built it. There's a pastor by the name of Paul Cowell. Pastor Chris and I both knew him and considered him his friend. Paul was larger than life. He made going to Whitestone part of the experience. So whenever Angie and I went, imagine this, say Valentine's Day, say your wedding anniversary, and you're at this quiet table having a four-course meal with a candlelight, and you're, you're engaged with each other, and here comes Paul Cowell pulling up a chair and sitting down next to you. All four courses. Because Paul's gift was to like, tell you about everybody in the room, tell you about his dream, tell you about his passion for Jesus, tell you about what's going on in the chapel, about who just got married, who just, you know, just births and, and things that are going on around him. That was Paul. You just learned to love it. It was part of the experience. Paul and his wife, Jean, we grew very close to. And in 2016, Paul passed away. And I remember getting the phone call. Actually, I was driving to this church on a Sunday morning. And I got the call from one of the staff out there, and they told me. And there's a new innkeeper out there, a man by the name of Lee Boggs. And if, if you go out, Lee is just as friendly. He's just as nice. And he's doing things out at Whitestone now, different things. Different is the key word. It's not better, I would say, but I'm a little biased. It's not worse, certainly not worse. The food's still amazing, but it's just different. You know what I mean? When something like that happens in your life, something changes, and it's just different, not better or worse. 
People, as a general rule, resist change. It's, I don't know why, it's how we're wired. Forbes magazine states that 62% of people surveyed resist change of any kind, and that in order to kind of understand why this happens, we have to sort of understand how we process change, all right? They implement something called the FIRE model. Humans generally evaluate the world around us with a four-step process. We notice facts. Then we make interpretations about those facts. Then based on our interpretations, not the facts noticed, but based on our interpretations, we experience emotional reactions. And then once we experience those emotions, we have some desired ends. I'll give you an example. Say you've been working at the same company for 10 years. Same boss. Good job. Good boss. Everything's great. Boss walks into your office one day and says, hey, everything's great. Job's good. You're doing wonderful. We love you. But starting tomorrow, you're going to be reporting to Sally down the hall, not me. 62% of us are going to go, <gasps> what? I got to start looking for a new job. I don't know Sally that well. I was in the elevator with her a couple weeks ago and I didn't make eye contact with her. She doesn't like me. Now the other 38%, you know, the weirdos, all right, they're, they're the ones that are going to say, all right, a challenge, something new, something different. That's going to be their way to look at it. But 62%, according to this survey, no, no, doesn't go that well. It's part of human psychology to seek the most familiar and the most comfortable. It's why we drive the same way to work every day. It's why we develop routines. It's why, having been gone from here for a while, I still came in here this morning with a mental map knowing where each one of you were going to sit. I'm not picking on you, but it's true. I was about 95% right. We love our routines. We love our habits, don't we? It's what makes habits so difficult to break. The bad ones, and, you know, that's, that's just how it is. So at this point, as we continue our reading in, I want you to understand that it's clear that Jesus' closest followers are all reacting to this realization that regardless of the message, change is coming for them. So if you haven't already, I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, where Jesus, after all of this bad news, does what many would. He works to reassure his disciples. We begin in 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled, he starts. Don't freak out. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas, 
Thomas called the twin. He gets a bad rap of all of the 12 apostles, the original 12 there. What do we know him by? Doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas because he refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he could see it with his own eyes and until he could touch the wounds. However, while Thomas was a skeptic and perhaps cautious, he was also passionate about following Jesus. I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in knowing that those two don't have to be mutually exclusive. Because I still struggle sometimes being a a bit skeptical about things. And it forces me to dig deeper. It forces me to read more. It forces me to pray more, ask questions, and consult others. But that doesn't mean that I can't be both skeptical and passionate just like Thomas. As a matter of fact, earlier, John records in John chapter 11 that Jesus, if you'll remember, he desires to return to Judea to raise Lazarus and the disciples are a little worried about this, about going back there. Because the last time that they were there, the Jews tried to stone Jesus. But Jesus insists that they return. And we read in John eleven sixteen, so Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now that's passion. If that's the call, let's go. Not much is known about Thomas, to be honest. Uh, He is clearly passionate. John's gospel is the only gospel that actually gives Thomas a voice. And here he lets his emotions speak for him in John 11. And I suspect that Thomas is one of those people that we all know that is what I like to call a heart person. There, there are, there's a spectrum. There's head people and there's heart people. And we all kind of waffle back and forth, but we all tend to lean one way or the other, don't we? That... That doesn't mean that the head people don't have a heart. Don't get me wrong. I'm a head person. I have one. It's in there somewhere. But we tend to rationalize things, and we tend to want to learn it first and know it. Your heart people, on the other hand, are the applicators. They're the ones that want to take it, run with it, apply it to what's going on around us, to, to life. Like I said, I'm a head person, but I'm married to a heart person, and that took a little while to get used to. I can read something in here. I can learn it. I can know it. I can be so excited about it that I can't wait to talk to her about it. We will sit down, and I'll say, "Hun, I got to share this with you. I got to unpack the the, the original language here. i got to unpack the literary genre. i got to unpack what's going on in history. And she's going, oh my gosh, we could apply that in, in my ministry at, at this. Or, or I, could, I could share this with this person that I've been talking to who's struggling with so-and-so. That's where she's going. She's a heart person. And I'm a head person. I suspect that Thomas was a heart person. See, when something in life pops up, change happens, 
Angie reacts. Me, I withdraw and process first. You think about those 11 in there. The record says that Thomas spoke. What were the rest of them doing? I think some of them were processing. Where do we go? What do we do? But it was Thomas who spoke up. He said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Which brings us to the verse that we're going to focus on today. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is so cool. Can I say that from the pulpit? Jesus is so cool. And I say that because if you consider, okay, Jesus is God, Jesus has all the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. I want to camp out on patience for just a second. Because he's been traveling and doing ministry with these men for three years. And they're really going to stand there sort of dumbfounded and say, we don't know where you're going. We don't, how, how can we know the way? And Jesus is so cool, he says, I am the way. I confess right now, if David Huey was asked that question after three years of ministry, I might say I am the way, but I would say, I am the way. What's the matter with you? Get there faster. Have you not been paying attention? But that's not our Lord. He doesn't do that. He's loving and kind and patient. So we have to realize first that, that, that we have to take this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We have to unpack a little bit, like I said, head person. We have to unpack here exactly what Jesus is saying. So, First of all, this is one of seven statements in John's gospel called the I am statements that Jesus makes. Now, in the Greek language, I am is actually a very intense way of referring to oneself. It's not like how we use it in English. In English, it's two words comprised of three letters that we just throw around willy-nilly all the time. I'm hungry. I am tired. I am happy to be back here seeing all of you. It's so casual in English that what have we done to those two words that have three letters? We took one letter out and made a contraction out of it. Didn't we? Now it's just I'm. It's so casual, but not in the Greek, no. In the Greek, what it would have meant would be more inclined to I myself and only I am. Jesus is equating himself to God the Father. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, Jesus actually quotes Exodus 3, 6, where God uses that same intensive form when God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I myself and only I am. 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In John 8, 58, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, what? I am. Now we can gloss over this when we read scripture sometimes, but the Jews didn't gloss over this. They knew exactly what he meant because they immediately responded by picking up stones and prepared to stone him for blasphemy. Why? Because Jesus was equating himself with God. This is why God says his name in Hebrew, Yahweh, which means to be or the self-existing one. I am. It speaks to God's eternal nature. Even, even if you just have just a mild relationship with God, you must understand that there is no God was and there is no God will be. There is God is. I am. God is eternal. Now today we're actually focusing on one little tiny part of this statement where Jesus says, I am the way. You notice that Jesus doesn't say, I am a way. He uses that definitive article, that definite article there for all you grammar nerds. He's, he's using the, right, distinguishing himself as the only way. When I was writing this sermon, I, I, I felt like I, I really needed to tie in my own experience on this particular passage and interacting with people about this because, and, and this is where I'm going with this, Christians need to be prepared to take a lot of heat for this statement. If you haven't already in your life as a Christian, you're going to, at some point, take heat for this, all right? You may have experienced it. We are called narrow-minded. I was once asked, actually by a family member, how do you know there aren't many different paths to God? You ever been asked that question? I love that question. I love that question because my answer that I have prepared tends to throw the questioner for a loop. How do you know there aren't many paths to God? Oh, that's easy. There isn't any path to God. That's the reaction you get right away. There isn't a path to God. So what I mean is, okay, let me, let me give you an example. A couple weeks ago, my wife's sister and our niece came up to visit us. Now, they're from Florida. Now, you know that anybody in the world who goes to Florida, they go to the beach, right? So people from Florida come up here for that same reason to go to Gatlinburg. Right? There's something about a waffle cone and a tie-dyed t-shirt that they just can't resist. I don't know. No. They, they want to go hiking. They want to go to the mountains because there's no mountains in Florida. Right? There aren't. Even the hills on the golf courses are man-made. So they want to come up here and they want to go hiking. Okay. All right. So we'll go hiking. Right? So we went out to, uh, out to the Great Smoky Mountains because it's a mountain, and because you can hike there, and because we found this place called the Peaceful Path. I don't know if you've ever hiked this path. It is peaceful. I will say that. It is very peaceful. However, 
The thing about this path is that it took a lot of work. You may hear hike. I don't hike as a general rule. Okay, I know we have runners in here and we have some track people and all that sort of thing, but here's, when you're hiking, you've got to watch out for everything. You've got the roots, you've got the stones, you've got clumps of grass, there's, there's you know, who knows what all over the place. At one point, we had to cross a stream, okay? That was like me coming down the aisle this morning and, you know, didn't want to touch the, the, the palms, right? So like a little bit of this, a little bit of that kind of thing. And... So it was work. It was work. Now a path, by definition, does lead you from one place to another, but you don't get there by standing still. You have to walk it. You have to put forth effort to get down the path. And I contend that Jesus isn't a that kind of path to God. Because our salvation isn't work-based. Now, semantics aside, I think I have to ask this question. Is it really narrow-minded for us as followers of Jesus Christ to believe what this man said? Does Jesus, in fact, have the authority to say that he's the only way? Well, yes. John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. These statements not only highlight the authority that Jesus has to say what he did, but they also kind of throw some serious shade on this idea that the statement is actually narrow-minded. Because who else is as qualified as Jesus? We would not be in our right minds to believe anyone else except God. That's not narrow-minded. Now you may hear some say, well, they give you that dismissive tone, well, Jesus was a good man. He was a moral teacher. According to C.S. Lewis, Jesus could not simply be that. In his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. That's it. He's either God or he's not. And if he's God, he has the authority to say what he said, I am the way. The Apostle Peter reiterated the same truth years later to the rulers in Jerusalem. He said this about Jesus in uh, Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. 
There is no other name. I underline that. In other words, there's no other way. Jesus says, I am the way. And quite frankly, this is at the same time one of the most comforting and distressing things for Christians to take in. It's comforting because we don't have to do anything except believe in Jesus. Jesus is our way. But there are those that we love in our lives who don't know the Lord. Whether it's friends, family, co-workers. There are people that we love. There are people that we care about who don't know this truth. And I don't... I know that I have never met a single Christian whose heart wasn't breaking over this. I prayed with a woman a couple months back who was trying to reach her, her college-age son. The current statistic right now is three out of four kids that go to college walk away from the faith. Three out of four. If that doesn't shock you, come talk to me. Yeah, that shocks me. And I was praying with this woman, and, and, and she voiced something that I have voiced in my heart for people that I know, people in my own family, my friends. She said, there's got to be like a, a, another way. There's, there, there's got to be some sort of backup plan, some sort of a rule, or exception to the rule, something. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth is, is that God has been the way throughout history. Before he came as Jesus, he was the way. And scripture shows us various methods that we've seen of how Jesus, or excuse me, how God leads us as the way. And one of the most visual examples, if not the most visual example, is chronicled in Exodus 13. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, you may be very familiar with that passage, but what you may have forgotten is that he didn't lead them on the most direct route from Egypt to the Promised Land. He led them his way. That's what it was all about. Now, pastor and author John Piper, he broke down God's methods of leading to four types we're going to cover here. The first one is decree. God sovereignly decrees and designs circumstances so that we end up where he wants us to be, even if we don't have any conscious part in getting there. You ever have that happen to you? You look back afterward, you know, hindsight is 20 20, you go, that's why. I'll give you a great example of this in scripture, okay? Uh, Paul and Silas find themselves in jail in Acts 16, and we begin reading here in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, 
And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That was God's plan. It certainly wasn't Paul's plan. You can't, there has never been a person in the history of people that has traveled into a new town, looked around and thought, you know, I bet you the food and accommodations are pretty good in that prison. We should just get ourselves arrested. No. That was God's plan. And he does this often. He puts us in places that we did not plan or decide to be. Second method of leading us, God directs us through direction. Directly in the teachings of his word. This is where it gets pretty simple, which is good for somebody like me. Ten commandments. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not lie. Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. How about the epistles, even? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. These are directions. I'm one of those rare guys that actually reads the directions before I start assembling something. Isn't that something? Directions are important. They work. You know, sometimes they don't make sense. Sometimes I'm looking at the wrong section and they're not even the language I understand, but the pictures help, you know? And we recently uh, completed a series in 1 Corinthians. And the theme that we kept going back to was, was Paul's direction to the church in Corinth. He says this, So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, Paul was speaking about a very specific thing in 1 Corinthians, but we looked at that and said, you know, that really applies. And whatever we do, whoever we're dealing with, whatever we're doing, are we glorifying God? Or are we glorifying ourselves? Another way that God uh, directs us is through discernment. Most of the decisions that we make, quite frankly, are not spelled out in black and white in the Bible. Sometimes when you're struggling with something in life and you're trying to figure out what to do and you go to God's word, there's no specific thing that tells you what to do when you got ripped off at the mechanic because, you know, you know that kind of thing. I mean, you know, how do, you, how do I react, you know, that kind of thing. It, there, there's so many vagaries in life. But Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In this case, God's not declaring a specific word to you, but through your spiritual formation, through your growth, through your time in the word, through your prayer, through your time in community, through your worship, as you grow closer to God, as you walk alongside Him, you know what to do. It gets easier and easier. The more you do it, the longer you do it. I would say this. It may start out as second nature to you. It becomes nature. That doesn't mean we don't struggle. As humans, we do. But the Bible doesn't have to specifically tell me what God's will is. I know God's will because I know Him, because I spend time with Him, because I ask Him, and because my wife tells me sometimes. She's <laughs> right upside the head. You know. <laughs> I give you a great analogy uh, that I, at least I think is a great analogy, and that's this. Okay, let's say that you know that there is one particular street that will take you to your favorite restaurant. One particular one, only one, okay? And you know that street will take you there. But you do yourself a service if you get familiar with that street by spending time going up and down that street. Why? Well, because let's say weather gets bad one day. Let's say visibility, it's dark out. The street doesn't have a specific sign that says to you, bump or pothole. But because of your familiarity with the street, you know where the pothole is, you know where the bump is, you just navigate around it. It's about spending time and getting familiar with our Heavenly Father. Let the Spirit guide you through the vagaries that aren't covered in black and white in the Word. It works. Know God. Know the way. Our final one is uh, declaration. This is the least common means of God's leading, according to Piper. He simply declares to us what we should do. He makes it idiot-proof. Remember the account when he, he instructed Noah on how to build the ark. He didn't just say, throw a boat together. He, he was vocal. He said to him, build the ark, and he gave him the dimensions. Told him what kind of wood to use. Right? In Acts 8.26, we read this account in the New Testament. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over 
and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Piper contends that this is the least common means because he's talking about God being vocal and saying, hey, Philip, go do this. But I, on the other hand, would argue that this does still happen today with that still small voice that we hear. It does happen. Now, depending on your background, okay, you may not have experienced something like this. I certainly hadn't at first. But a few years ago, I was at a prayer and worship service, and I was assigned to be on the prayer team. It's cool when you're on the prayer team, you get a different colored lanyard. It's orange, I don't know why. And, uh, and, and you're in the back of the room, right? So, so this particular moment, all right, people are, worship is going, people are worshiping, some are journaling, some are writing scripture, some are... Uh, praying, you know, quietly to themselves or praying in groups, and they've been told that they can go back and receive prayer from the prayer team. Now, uh, I have to explain. There are about 20 people on the prayer team around this room. There's about 300 people in here, and there's at least 20 people. It seemed like there were more orange lanyards than anything I'd ever seen, right? And so they all get the call, you know, go, go, you know, if you need prayer, go. And they went, they came to everyone but me. And at first I thought it was just my imagination or my insecurity. I started looking around at, you know, because we were kind of lined around. Everybody had, everybody was engaging with somebody. Everybody was. My wife had two. It wasn't fair. She had one lady locked in, in one of her patented hugs who was crying. Another lady who'd come up for prayer had a box of tissue, and she was just whipping the tissue out like a, like a Baccarat dealer in Vegas. You know, it's just go, go, go. You know, they were just going through tissues like crazy. And, and I'm standing here. I'm ready. I can do this. Nothing. And then I heard there was one man that was sitting in a chair, Faded overalls, an older man, I had no idea his name, never met him before in my life, and he was just sitting. He wasn't praying, he wasn't being emotional, he was just sort of sitting, stoic. His eyes were open, I knew he wasn't napping, so, but he was just sitting there, and God said, go and pray with him. Oh, wait a minute now, wait a minute. I think that's just my imagination. I think it's because I'm looking around this room and everybody's engaged with somebody else and he doesn't appear to be, have anybody and I don't appear to have anybody, so maybe I should go over that kind of thing. So no, that's probably not. Go and pray with this man. So I started looking around again just to verify that everybody else in this room was busily engaged doing something. Everyone was. Everyone was. I even tried to do that uncomfortable guy thing where you're in the back of a crowded room and try to make eye contact with somebody you know so you can kind of give them that head thing, you know? You know that one, right? Nobody. I couldn't even get eye contact with anybody. 
go and pray with this man. I literally felt my knees shaking as I walked very carefully over. Didn't know him, never met him before. And start to get down, and, and I'm like, uh, sir, 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 um, I think God wants me to pray with you. I put my hand on his shoulder. You know men of a certain age were raised, don't cry. Suck it up. Be a man. You just don't see it. My dad was that way. You know, even I struggle with that. I think my generation was kind of started the first to, to say, ah, you know, it's okay as long as not too many people see you or you trust the people who see you, that kind of thing. But he, his eyes immediately filled up. And these weathered cheeks and the tears just started to come down. And he said, I was sitting here and all I said to God was, if you're there, just send somebody to pray with me. I almost missed that opportunity. I missed, almost missed that opportunity because I got in the way of God. How crazy is that for me to think that my way makes more sense than the way? The problem is that I'm an overthinker. Angie wants to get me this t-shirt. She found this. And she said, that's you. Hooey, that's you. I'm going to get that shirt for you. I overthink everything. Anybody like that? You know that Mandisa song, Overcomer? You're an overcomer. Write that one. Mine is, you're an overthinker. <laughs> Complicate the simplest things in life. You're an overcomer. Yeah, okay, that's, that's this guy. I do it. I don't know why I do it. I don't know if I do it because I'm insecure. I don't know if I do it because, because I'm that head type and I want to make sure I've got everything complete, all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed before, you know, before I go out there and stick my foot in my mouth. I'm an overthinker. And I was thinking about this particular thing today in regard to this last, um, this last point that John Piper was making. And it occurred to me that we have 11 frightened men in this upper room facing change in John 14. And Thomas speaks up. The other 10, do you think maybe there were some overthinkers in there? Is it really that complicated? Really? Do we do this? Do we do this pertaining to our walk? Do we do this pertaining to our approach to Jesus Christ? I've heard it. Well, if I could just find that one Bible study, then all of a sudden, ah, everything would just sort of open up and I'd, it makes sense. If I could just find that one translation of the Bible, if I could just find that one preacher, if I could just find that one church that gets me, we're overthinking because all you have to find is that one way Jesus said I am the way it's that simple it always has been it always will be amen
I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and uh, as I start to uh, pray here to close us out, I want to read one last passage from Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Father God, the, the way may be narrow, but we know that we are not narrow-minded. Just because we believe in the words spoken by you, by your authority, you have victory over death. Lord, you conquered the grave. Lord, you came and saved us. That's not narrow-minded. Lord, thank you for being the way, for paying that cost for all of us. Use us, Father, to guide those like Philip who don't know you to you, the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.